let me encourage you to wrap up those conversations and continue them afterwards. Um, if we haven't met before, my name's Keith Hill. Um, I work for uh, the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students, the ministry uh, out on campus here uh, at USQ. Uh, and I'll be with you for the next four weeks as we get to work through this great Old Testament book of Jonah together. So how about we pray and then we get stuck into uh, chapter one. Uh, gracious Father, uh, you say that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. And all of our words this morning will be in vain if you don't give us understanding and convict us by your spirit and help us to change and live in the way that you call us to. And so we ask for your help. Uh, we ask for your spirit to work so that Jesus might be honoured and glorified in the way that we live. And we prayed in his name. Amen. Uh, well, I had a, a bit of a poke around the Eastgate website this week, uh, knowing that I was coming, uh, looking particularly at the values that Eastgate has as a church. Now, that's a really worthwhile thing to do if you haven't done it yourself before. Uh, check out the Eastgate website after the service. Um, a church's statement of values are the things that make a church tick, the things that get them excited and really the things that drive everything that you guys want to do together or at least the things that you want to drive what you do together. And if you've checked out Eastgate's values before on the website, then you'll know that outreach, uh, proclaiming Jesus in Toowoomba and the Downs and through the rest of the world really, is something that Eastgate says you guys value. It's right there in your value statement, value number seven, evangelism that is missional. I don't know if you knew that, but that's what you value. You are on about evangelism, about telling people the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can put their trust in him. And that's good and right, because the Bible tells us that sharing the good news of Jesus is the responsibility of every Christian. Uh, J.I. Packer puts it like this in his wonderful little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, always and everywhere, servants of Christ are under orders to evangelise. The very first sentence in the book. And so I want you to think for a moment, what sort of evangelist are you? What sort of evangelist are you? Maybe you're one of those very rare people who's a gung-ho evangelist, highly skilled. Uh, people like that are pretty scarce though, aren't they? I think most of us, and, and I definitely put myself in this category, are actually reluctant evangelists. And there might be a bunch of reasons why we are reluctant evangelists. Uh, for some of us, it's because of our temperament. Evangelism, evangelism is hard because we are shy, we're introverted, it, it feels frightening, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to bring Jesus into the conversations that we're having. For lots of us, it's cultural. And you know, the old adage is that you don't talk about religion and politics. Jesus isn't someone that you bring up in polite conversation, is he? Aussies talk about sport and the weather. We don't talk about Jesus. Perhaps your reason is actually theological. You're not convinced of the need to tell people about Jesus. 
You know, they have their beliefs and we have ours. Talking about it just causes conflict. And besides, you don't have the gift of evangelism and maybe the people that you know would never be interested anyway. They wouldn't darken the door of a church with you and so there's no point really sharing the gospel, is there? It's best just not to rock the boat by talking about Jesus. For most of us though, really, I think the problem behind all of those other problems is motivational. We're busy, we've got family commitments, work's crazy at the moment, a bunch of extracurricular activities and besides, we actually serve at church. So it's not like we're not doing God stuff. Evangelism is just low on the priority list and we're not that gifted at it anyway. I reckon the truth of it is, though, whatever reason we might give, we actually feel a little guilty about that. We know we should be making more of an effort to talk about Jesus. We know, really, that evangelism isn't an optional extra for Christians. We know that it's a key part of our faith and God calls us to it. We feel guilty and yet we feel powerless to change and we need help. And that, I think, is what Jonah is here for. The big point of Jonah is that evangelism, calling people to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, is actually at the heart of who God is and what he loves. God is a God of mission. That's the point of this little book of Jonah, as Jonah himself puts it later in chapter 2, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's what Jonah's about. Now, if you've grown up in church, if you know the story of Jonah, I'm sure, you may have some ideas on what it's about. Uh, Jonah is the classic story for the kids, isn't it? But often that's where we leave the book of Jonah. We leave it to the kids. Because our grown-up modern minds make the book of Jonah seem a little bit fishy. Come on. You guys are a tough audience. We find the idea of a a man-eating fish a little bit hard to swallow. They'll they'll keep coming. Uh, the, The story of Jonah, though, isn't really about a fish. Don't worry too much about the fish, and we'll get to the fish next week, but don't worry about the fish. The fish is a red herring. The book of Jonah is actually really about God. The God who is gracious and compassionate, a God who is rightly offended by sin but still wants all people to be saved. It's about the God who is himself the great evangelist. And we can take encouragement from that. If God can save a whole city of people like Nineveh, then he can save the people that we think are beyond saving. And if he can use a weird and weak and reluctant prophet like Jonah, then he can use weird and weak and reluctant evangelists like you and me. So let's dive into Jonah. And in chapter 1, God shows us that he is the one who is fully in control and fully in charge. God is sovereign. He's in charge. He's in charge of all nations. He's in charge of all nature. And he's in charge of salvation. That's where we're going today. First of all, God is in charge of all nations. 
Uh, The book of Jonah begins just like every other prophetic book in the Old Testament, uh, with a phrase that occurs over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. So in the first verse, we're introduced to our two main characters, the protagonist and the antagonist, the good guy and the bad guy. Uh, The good guy is the Lord. And when you see that word, Lord, in all capital letters in your Bible, it means something specific. It's how the Bible translators translate God's personal name, Yahweh. It's the name, I Am. Yahweh is the name that God gave to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. It's a name that's designed to say that God is incomparable. There is no one like God. He is the creator. He's not part of his creation. He's absolute in power and in control. He's omnipotent and sovereign. And for Israelites, that name has a special meaning. Yahweh is his covenant name. This name is a name that reminds Israel he is their God. He's the one who rescued them from oppression and slavery in Egypt. He's the one who made Israel his own special holy people, who called them out of Egypt to be a light to the nations. Israel's job, the reason for their existence, is to be on mission to the rest of the world. And this God, Yahweh, is a God who exercises his power by speaking. And so his word then comes to our second character, the antagonist, the man named Jonah. Now, we don't get much background on Jonah here, do we? Uh, And the only other place that he's mentioned in the Bible is in 2 Kings, chapter 14. Uh, In 2 Kings, we're told that Jonah is from a little town called Gath-Hefer, and he lived during the time that Jeroboam is king of Israel. Uh, Israel is the northern tribes of uh, God's people. They are the rebellious tribes And it's the 8th century BC. Jeroboam was known as an evil king, like all of the kings of Israel. And all the other prophets in Jonah's time were preaching against Jeroboam. They were preaching warnings to Israel that God would judge them for their evil. But Jonah comes along in two kings and he preaches that Jeroboam is actually going to expand the borders of Israel. Jonah promises blessing from God. I think that tells us that Jonah is a a nationalist. Jonah is a guy who loves his country. I think he's the kind of guy, if he was an American, he'd have an American flag in his front yard, he'd have a God Bless America bumper sticker. If he was an Aussie, he would have a Southern Southern Cross tattoo on his back. But as we'll see through this book... Jonah is a selfish, spiteful and foolish man. He's resentful, he's racist, he's pro-Israel and anti-everyone else. And even though he's a prophet and he knows what God is like, it doesn't seem like Jonah likes God very much. But Yahweh's word comes to this man, Jonah, and it comes with an unexpected message. See there in verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. 
It's an unexpected message because this is the only time in the Old Testament that a prophet is ever told to go outside of Israel and prophesy to someone else. You see, it was understood that God was the God of Israel. And that is his turf. That's where his dominion is. That's where he has sovereignty. But Nineveh is definitely not in Israel. Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's 800 kilometres northeast of Jonah's hometown. It's where Mosul is today in Iraq. And God tells Jonah two things about Nineveh. The first thing he says is that Nineveh is a great city. Uh, That doesn't mean it's really good. He's not saying, go to Nineveh, you'll have a whale of a time. It's great because it's big. It's important. Uh, The Assyrian Empire is the superpower of the 8th century. And that makes Nineveh one of the most important cities in the world at that time. But it's not actually its cultural or political significance that makes Nineveh great in God's eyes. Actually, it's the fact that Nineveh is the home to 120,000 people. 120,000 people who are made in God's image, who are important and valuable to him, but 120,000 people who don't know him and are ignorant of the judgment that's coming on them. That's why cities and towns are important. Nineveh is actually about the same size as Toowoomba. Toowoomba is a great city to God. Toowoomba is not great for all the business and the commerce that goes on here. It's not great for its cultural or historical significance. It's not great because we have the flower festival. It's great because 135,000 people who are made in God's image live here. Our city is great to God because it's full of people made in his image but who are in danger of perishing in eternal judgment. Nineveh is a great city. But the second thing that God says is that it's an evil city. Uh, The Assyrian Empire, with Nineveh as its capital, was known for its idolatry and its wickedness and its depravity. It's a cruel nation and it takes pride in its cruelty. If you go to the British Museum today, you can see artefacts from the Assyrian Empire that celebrate how brutal they were. You can see them here uh, impaling their enemies. Their art celebrates their brutality. And the next generation of Ninevites, the ones after uh, the ones that Jonah's told to preach to, uh, they will invade Israel and they will brutally crush them. Uh, The prophet Nahum actually speaks about Nineveh. Here's what Nahum says. He says, Woe to the bloody city, that's Nineveh, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. Ninevites were a savage, bloodthirsty people. But why does God care? He's the God of Israel. 
Why does he care what people are doing at 800 kilometres outside of his home turf? He cares because he says Nineveh's wickedness has come up before him. It's come up before him because he's sovereign over all the earth. You see, he's not only the God who is in charge of Israel, he's the God who is in charge of all nations. And so Nineveh's wickedness offends him because it's done right in front of his face. That's true for us too, isn't it? Because God is sovereign, because God is in charge of all nations, our sin, our wickedness is done right in front of his face. Whether it's blatant disobedience or just ignoring the fact that he exists, or whether it's done in open view or you know, behind closed doors, all of your sin is done right before the face of God. And so the sovereign God tells his prophet to go to Nineveh and pronounce his judgment on it. Jonah, though, <clears throat> Jonah, uh, isn't on board with God's plan. And so he gets up to flee. Uh, and as you know, he quickly finds out that's a bad idea because not only is God in charge of all nations, but God is actually in charge of all nature. And that's what we see in verses 3 to 10. God is in charge of all nature. Now, uh, no doubt this is a hard gig that God has given to Jonah. Uh, It's kind of the equivalent of God asking an American to go uh, wearing an American flag t-shirt to stand in the middle of ISIS-controlled Syria and say, the God of America is going to judge you. Uh, This is a hard gig. But I think it's not fear that motivates Jonah, it's actually hatred for anyone who's not an Israelite. And so, when God tells Jonah to get up and go, uh, he does, he gets up and goes, but in exactly the opposite direction, as far as he can go, away from the presence of God. Uh, First he goes to Joppa, that's where Tel Aviv is today, and he looks for a ship that's headed anywhere but Nineveh. He finds one headed for Tarshish, you can see uh, that's in Spain. Uh, Joppa is not in Israel, the sailors are Gentiles, no one there is going to hassle him about disobeying his God, and so he pays the fare, he goes aboard and heads out to sea. He tries to run, but he very quickly finds out that you can run from God, but you can't hide. Surely Jonah would know that already, I think. Uh, he says in himself in verse 9 that he fears the God who made the sea and the dry land. Uh, as one of God's prophets, as a proud Israelite, he would know the Psalms. Uh, he'd know Psalms like Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. No matter where we go, we can't flee from the presence of God. Yahweh isn't just the God of Israel, he's the God of all creation. How can you run away from this God? It's stupid of Jonah, isn't it? 
It's stupid, but you know, sin is always stupid and Jonah is going to keep proving that he is a stupid man. He has to learn his lessons the hard way. Uh, God has anticipated Jonah's every move. He's already prepared a storm that is so ferocious that it threatens to break the ship apart. A storm so severe that even the seasoned sailors are afraid. They seem to recognise that this is no ordinary storm and so what do they do? They start praying to their own gods. That doesn't work because their gods are not real gods. And so then they start dumping the cargo to lighten the load. Whatever it is they're carrying, it's not as valuable to them as their own lives. And you see in that, I think, how different they are from Jonah. While these pagan sailors do whatever they can to save themselves and save their ship and save all of those who are on it, where do we find Jonah? He's gone down into the ship and he's fast asleep. The sailors are active, but Jonah is passive. They're desperate for salvation and the one who knows how they can be saved is fast asleep. Is that us? We have a city of 135,000 people that's perishing. Friends and family and neighbours and colleagues, people sinking under the waves of God's judgement. Are we asleep? We know the one who can still the seas with just his word the one who is a refuge in the storm of judgment. Are you a sleeping evangelist? If you are, wake up. Wake up and tell people to take refuge in Jesus. For Jonah, he needs the captain of the ship to shake him awake and get him to act. Call out to your God and maybe he'll be the one to help us. They call Jonah up onto deck and cast lots like rolling dice, trying to figure out who's responsible for the storm. And even in something seemingly as random as rolling dice, God shows he's the one in control. The lots confirm for the sailors what we and what Jonah already know. God's anger and this storm is because of him. And so the sailors fire questions at him to get to the bottom of it. What's your job? Where are you from? What have you done that is so bad that this is happening to us? And Jonah's answer, uh, his testimony of sorts, shows at once his arrogance and his stupidity. His arrogance. I am a Hebrew. It's said with a a sense of nationalistic pride. He's better than these pagan sailors. But also his stupidity. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when they hear it, the fear of the sailors shifts from the storm to Jonah. This guy thinks that by getting on a boat... He can escape the God who made the seas. It's scary being around people who are that stupid, isn't it? 
He says he fears Yahweh, but every action he's taken in this story so far screams exactly the opposite. Respecting God, fearing God leads to obedience. Jonah has disobeyed at every turn. But then they're even more afraid because of who Jonah says he's running from. They believe Jonah when he says that Yahweh is behind this storm and they know that it's a bad idea to run from the one who's in charge of all nature. Because here the wind and the sea are being used by God to bring judgment on Jonah for his disobedience. Jonah can't escape God's command and he can't escape God's wrath. But thankfully this God who is in charge of all the nations... This God who is in charge of all of nature is also in charge of salvation. He can rescue these sailors from certain death. He can deliver them from his wrath. That's what we see in verses 11 to 16. God is in charge of salvation. Jonah knows that the way to save these sailors is to accept the blame and sacrifice himself. God's wrath will be satisfied by the death of his prophet. There's echoes of Jesus there, isn't there? He says, throw me overboard and the sea will calm down. The sailors, uh, they try and save themselves and Jonah. Uh, These pagans actually show more thoughtfulness and compassion than God's own prophet has so far. Uh, They row hard trying to get back to shore, but they can't. There is no way that anyone can save themselves from God's wrath. And so with fear and trembling, they do what Jonah suggested. They recognise that this is God's sovereign plan. He's done what he wanted. And very politely, they ask him for his mercy. This is what you wanted, God. Please don't lay this man's blood on our hands. It's the sort of cry that is conspicuously absent from the lips of those who killed Jesus, isn't it? But Jonah's short testimony in verse 9, it's already enough for these sailors to be convinced that Yahweh is the God that they need to trust, the God that they need to turn to for mercy. And you see in verse 14, these formerly pagan sailors go from calling Yahweh Jonah's God, your God, to calling him their God. They take his name on their lips. They call him Lord They call him Yahweh, his covenant name. They ask for his mercy and then they pick Jonah up and they throw him into the sea and immediately the sea grows calm. Jonah's sacrifice satisfies God's wrath and these pagan sailors come to simple Old Testament saving faith. They've been afraid of the storm. They are exceedingly afraid of Jonah's stupidity and the danger that it places them in. But now it says in verse 16, their fear comes to rest on Yahweh and they offer sacrifices to him and make vows to follow him. With no help from Jonah at all, even in spite of Jonah, the prophet who's running away from God because he doesn't want God to save pagans these pagan sailors have come to faith. And God's used Jonah's short testimony to turn these sailors from idol worship to worship of the true and living God. 
And if God can use Jonah's words to save people, then he can use yours too. Because God is the God who's in charge of salvation. And that's why when the risen Jesus commands his disciples to proclaim the gospel, what does he reassure them with? He reassures them with his authority. He is the one who is in charge of salvation. The Lord Jesus, who offered himself to save sinners, is now in charge of all creation. And so his gospel needs to be proclaimed to all nations. That's what Jesus says uh, in uh, Matthew 28. In the Great Commission, verse 18, Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is the word of the Lord to us. It's the word of the Lord Jesus who is in charge of all nations, who's in charge of all creation and who's in charge of all salvation. It's his word to us telling us that we're to declare his lordship to all people. It's his word to you. And if he can use Jonah's reluctant testimony on the boat to save these pagan sailors, he can use your nervous efforts too. And so tell people who it is that you worship. Just say something. Ask someone that you're chatting to this week. Uh, The preacher at church on Sunday said that I have to practice it uh, sharing the gospel in a 10-second testimony. Can you listen to it and tell me what you think? You can blame it on me. It's my fault then. You don't have to be so awkward about it. And they'll go, oh, I suppose so. And you can say, I am a Christian. I follow Jesus, who's the promised saviour king, the one who's our divine creator, and I follow him because he came as our king, died for our sins, rose to rule and will return to judge. And you can say, oh, what do you think of that? And they'll go, okay, that's, that's good. And then you can invite them to lunch and talk to them more about it, and you're off. You can invite them to read a gospel with you and learn more about Jesus. And because God is sovereign over salvation, he can use it to save them. Tell people who it is you worship. And who knows, maybe they will already know that they are drowning and they are just waiting for you to throw them a life preserver. If you're here and you're not a Christian yet, though, remember that every one of your sins is done before the face of God. You can't hide them. There's no way of sweeping them under the carpet. You can't escape the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Even in the depths of the sea, he is there. His judgment for sin is inescapable and it's worse than a mere storm at sea. But he's provided a saviour. And so no matter how far you've run or how pagan you've been, there is salvation offered in Jesus. 
We'll see more of that in chapter 2 next week. But right now, how about we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, you really are the one who is in charge of everything. You are the God who rules all nations. You rule all creation. And so all of our sin is done before you, right in front of, our fa- uh, of your face, and it deserves your wrath. But thank you that you are also the God who's in charge of salvation and that you've given a sacrifice who takes your wrath in our place. Thank you that Jesus, by his death, is able to still the storm of your wrath and save us from certain death. Please help us trust in his sacrifice for our rescue. And Father, if we're sleeping evangelists, please wake us up. Give us the same compassion for the lost that you have so that they can be saved. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We're going to continue by singing now, I believe.